everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Mito Support of New England. I uh, turned Mito Social for this special event today. I know we've all been looking forward to this for quite a while now. Um, my name is Julie Gertzie. I'm the coordinator of Mito Support of New England. I'm an RN, a mother of four, and I have mitochondrial disease. I volunteer for the organizations uh, Mito Action and the UMDS. I just want to take a minute to remind people and to share, if you don't know about the bill um, that we're trying to get passed in Massachusetts, HB 977, people who are aware of it and don't know the last details, it's been postponed and the vote is going to be in July, so we still need people to write letters and contact the Finance Committee and let them know why we need the uh, insurance is to be mandated to help pay for the supplement. So if you don't have one of these papers, please, there's plenty of them up there, and notify them. We need everybody to. I mean, your friends, neighbors, whoever, you don't have to have MITO to let these people know how important this is. But Massachusetts residents would be for the most part, though. Um, the other thing I want to share, please take one of these. This is the best for the copies that I have, there's going to be a conference in Boston. It's going to be for physicians, nurses, and nurse practitioners. Take it, make copies, give it to your physicians, your PCPs, your nurses, nurse practitioners, um, so that they can be at this conference in May, May, May 3rd. And there's plenty of these papers up front also. Um, and. There's also my cards up there, and I do want to share, I mean, take it, email me if you have any ideas for the group, suggestions for the group, um, anything that you want to do to, you know, I, I mean, whatever, whatever ideas, fundraising, um, you know, whatever. Just feel free to email me, and I'm very happy to work with you on that. Okay, um, I'd like to take a minute just to thank some people though, who um, helped to bring this event together today. And I want to thank Cotty's Furniture. I did see someone downstairs when I was there, and I thanked him profusely. I want the helpers too. Um, this community room free is a, it's a wonderful thing for the Mito community. And you know, it's giving us a chance to be able to come together and be able to share with what we deal with, you know, in the mital world that so many others out there really have no idea, you know, what's happening. Um, I want to thank Christy Balsells and Mito Action for the support and sponsorship for this meeting today. Uh, Christy has certainly been a most outstanding advocate and a wonderful role model in showing support for people affected by this disease. I thank Ginger Jashaney, uh, also with Mito Action, uh, for all her helping, helping me to get the word out for today's event and letting me run ideas by her, uh, not only for today, but in many of the situations that I found myself in uh, volunteering with Mito Action. I thank ThriveX, ThriveRx, for being so kind as to offer refreshments for our meet today, and feel free to help yourself throughout the meeting, and please take a moment at some point to say hello to Laura, um, she'd love to get to know you and to share with you all that Thrive Rx has to offer as a national nutrition support company. 
I thank my volunteers, friends, and families for helping me to set up and spending time with the kids, uh, allowing them to get to know one another as well, and keeping them occupied with the activities while we hear from our speakers today. I thank Attleboro Cable also for being here today to record our meeting so it will be available to anyone who wishes to listen once we have the video ready for public reference. Um, I know this will be a very valuable asset for the Mito community. Forgive me in advance for reading so much off the papers. I have my own memory issues I have to deal with and I want to be able to get my point across and please, you know, don't think that I'm any less passionate because I'm reading off the papers. Because, I mean, what we're here with today is very important. Um, the Mino community has had a stressful winter. There's no doubt about that. Um, a certain unfortunate situation uh, has brought to the surface a concern, uh, a fear that many people affected by this disease has related to at one time or another. In my time volunteering for the Mito community, I have heard many stories from people who are actually fearful of going to the ER or bringing their child to a pediatrician for medical care. Sadly, in the wrong hands and at the wrong timing, due to a misunderstanding and lack of awareness of possible clinical presentations in mitochondrial disease, such a situation can escalate after a person might have been questioned as to having the symptoms that they go in to see the physician about. Accusations can be thrown towards the patient or family and can include Munchausen by proxy, conversion disorder, and medical child abuse. These accusations can lead towards misdiagnosis and lack of appropriate treatment for the patient. These accusations themselves have the potential to initiate a negative emotional process for the patient that otherwise would not have even been started, such as the depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, frustration, fear, and anger. A mitochondrial disease patient already has a great amount to deal with. The disease in itself is complex, unpredictable, and overwhelming. The person affected by this disease lives daily with many out-of-control symptoms. This person lives with the physical reminders of having this disease and knows the tragic outcomes that have befallen many others with this disease and yet may be told by the inexperienced that his or her symptoms are to be not real. This is not acceptable. To make this all even more stressful, it has not been unheard of for a child or an adult mito patient to be admitted to a psych floor after entering an ER with troublesome symptoms that the physicians just did not understand. Many, many families have been forced to deal with and be evaluated by child protection services in their state because referrals stands in against their family by physicians, clinics, and school officials. We who belong to a real disease community have all heard the heartbreaking extreme cases of a parent's rights being taken away from their child. And that's their ill child who they only want to help feel better. And that ill child is not allowed to be cradled in the arms of his or her parents. Because I know 
People will be watching this recording who have never heard of mitochondrial disease. I feel I need to give a very short introduction of what this disease is and where more information can be found. For these people first hearing about this debilitating disease, please visit the websites mitoaction.org and the umdf.org where you will find a wealth of educational material from podcasts, videos, personal stories, and much, much more. Mitochondrial disease is caused by faulty mitochondria. Everyone has mitochondria in their cells, all cells except the red blood cells. The mitochondria are what are responsible for creating the, the energy needed for our body systems to function. The mitochondria make the energy that enable us to walk, talk, breathe, digest food, and keep our hearts beating. But if there's a problem, a mitochondria cannot produce the energy required, our body systems can slow down or even die. An affected person may have any system or a variety of systems affected and show symptoms such as hearing loss, vision loss, GI issues, strokes, seizures, and the list goes on. A mito patient might have a much more exaggerated clinical presentation when facing even just the common cold and may have a much longer recuperation period. A serious energy loss may cause organ failure. Complications may cause death. There is no cure for mitochondrial disease. Attention is kept on relieving symptoms as they appear and a schedule of supplements known as the mitococktail, which consists mainly of supplemental vitamins and antioxidants that are taken in high doses. There is a tremendous need for awareness, education, and research for those affected by mitochondrial disease. Today we're going to hear from an attorney who has a great deal of knowledge and experience working with clients who have been involved in medical child abuse and DCF cases. But first we're going to hear from a woman who has offered to share with us her experiences with mitoaction as a patient and family advocate. Jessica Shriver has degrees in biochemistry and theology and is currently working on her doctorate in bioethics. She has worked with families of children with chronic illness for the last three years in addition to dealing with chronic illness in her own children. Jessica, may I welcome you to the floor. Good afternoon. Um, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about medical ethics. If I can have my slide changer, thank you. Um, I'm right there for right now. Um, a lot of people have asked, and I know Julie had some questions before the, um, the presentation today, what does medical ethics have to do with medical child abuse or medical neglect? I mean, that's what people are here for. That's what they want to know about. So how are medical ethics and patient decision-making related? Well, over the last three years, as I've been working with different families, I've been getting a lot of questions about how and why doctors make decisions the way that they do. Why did a certain physician feel like it was unacceptable for a parent to, you know, reject a certain care plan or to ask for a certain care plan? And I began to look more closely at the issues that were involved about why families were confused. And I thought about my own experiences with my two children who have been given a, a clinical diagnosis of mitochondrial disease. Um, when I first entered the medical community as a parent, I knew nothing about the way the medical system worked. I did not know why doctors made the decisions they did, how they made them, what factors they used to make decisions, what was important to them, what they looked for in interacting with families. And looking back, 
that was a time of great confusion, as it has been for many of you as you first entered the medical community. And it also led to situations in which I would come in with one perspective and not realize that the medical team had a completely different perspective, which made working cooperatively difficult, and sometimes we didn't work cooperatively very well at all. Um, yes, this led to difficult situations, fights sometimes, arguments, or even just misunderstandings. Um, and so over the last three years, as I've been working with more and more families, I've been getting, unfortunately, about one to two new, new families a month who contact me because they're involved with a medical child abuse or medical neglect accusation. One of the very first things we do is we start to talk about what is medical ethics and how do doctors make decisions because this allows parents to sort of understand the other side and maybe have the opportunity to work more cooperatively with their medical teams. So what is medical ethics? Medical ethics is, you know, at the baseline, it's a study of how to make medical decisions. It's a subsection of, of a study called bioethics, which is a type of philosophy which we don't need to know about to, you know, to understand basic medical ethics. But it's how and why do we make medical decisions the way that we do. So it's a guide for providers and patients. A lot of people hear the term medical ethics and they think immediately, well, this obviously just applies to doctors. It doesn't apply to us. It doesn't apply to families. But that's not true. Medical ethics is a study by many people of how medical decisions are made and should be made. And actually, most of the contributors to the science and the field of medical ethics are not doctors. They're lawyers. They're theologians. Yes, there are medical providers. They're philosophers. Many people have something to say about medical ethics, including patients. It is a guide for all of us as to how to make medical decisions, what is right, what is wrong on a basic moral level, and then when we get to complicated cases, how do we apply those ideas to choose the best course of action. So there are four basic principles of medical ethics. The first one is called beneficence. These are some, you know, bigger vocabulary terms that may or may not be familiar, and they're not really what's important. The, the title isn't what's important, the idea is what's important. So the first one is beneficence. Um, the second one is called non-malfeasance. The third, autonomy. And the fourth, justice. Okay, next one. All right, beneficence is basically, it's the obligation of healthcare providers to help people in need. At its basic baseline level, what is the job of a doctor or a medical provider? It's to help people. I think, you know, even, even small children know that much. And that's, bottom line, that's what beneficence is. When you're making medical decisions, the way that you think about beneficence is the basic question, will the proposed treatment help the patient? Yes or no? If the answer is no, then you really have no business offering it. Non-malfeasance is the duty of health providers to do no harm. I think most of us have heard of something called the Hippocratic Oath, which is an oath that originated thousands of years ago for doctors in the very early stages of medicine that was, they swore to a number of things, but the one that most people know, the most famous part is, first, do no harm. No matter what you're going to do for the patient, you're not supposed to be hurting them, you're supposed to be making them better. So non-malfeasance is the ethical obligation to do no harm to the patient. The basic question that you think about is, will the proposed treatment plan harm patient in any way? Now, sometimes the answer is yes, and the treatment plan can still be a good one. Surgeries harm patients. They cause pain. They leave you in the hospital for days or sometimes weeks, and you're going to have a tough recovery, but that harm is judged to be worth it because of the outcome. So just because something may cause harm on a basic level does not mean it's unethical medically. It just is one of the factors that you have to consider. 
So autonomy. This is a really important one, and it's a one where a lot of families and other um, non-medical providers have confusion. Autonomy is the obligation that medical providers have to let patients make choices about their medical care, and it's the right that patients have to make those choices. The basic question is, what does the patient think about the proposed treatment plan? If you have what you consider to be the world's most brilliant medical plan that's going to make this patient all better, but they want nothing to do with it, you can't just tell them, too bad, we're going to do it at the end. It doesn't work that way. The patient, the adult patient, and we'll get into that a little more in a second, has the right to make choices about their medical care. Um, the caveat is that autonomy is a right that applies to adults, and it's a right that applies to adults that are both competent and have legal capacity. Um, we're going to talk a little more about that, but it doesn't apply the same way in children, and that can be a big source of confusion to families. So justice is one that doesn't always apply in every individual case. It's more for some of the, the broader social issues, but it is, it's the obligation of medical providers to provide medical care that is fair, that is just, to the patient and also to society. Um, the basic question that doctors have to ask themselves, that people ask themselves, is, is the proposed treatment plan fair to the patient and is it fair to society? And actually, sometimes those two things can be in conflict. You can say that it's not fair to deny a patient, say, a heart transplant. That patient needs the transplant, they're going to die without it. But the burden of that transplant and the burden of supplying transplants to all patients in a certain category may not actually be fair to society. So, those two ethical issues can sometimes be in conflict with each other, and that's you know, just one example of the many places that you have to find a balance in medical ethics. Um, so how does medical ethics work? Um, the four principles are weighed against each other when you're making a choice. There's practically no choice where every single principle is going to be in line and there's no conflicts whatsoever. Like I said, even a surgery can be seen as violating the concept of doing no harm at some level. But that doesn't mean it's a bad medical choice. It doesn't mean it's a bad decision. So when you and your doctors and your medical teams are sitting around and you're trying to make choices about a treatment plan, should we do this or should we not, you know, doctors and other people who are involved, social workers and other medical providers, they think in their head, okay, let's consider the four basic ethical principles and how do they compete with each other, how are they balanced with each other, which one is going to be most important in this treatment choice. Um, so medical providers and patients must work together to find the balance. And difficult cases, and there are, there are lots of difficult cases, we wouldn't be here today talking about you know, concepts like medical child abuse and medical neglect if there were not difficult medical ethics cases. Difficult cases can be referred to ethics committees in hospitals, and the really difficult cases get referred to the U.S. judicial system. They go to court. Um, Ethics committees are sometimes, I think, an underutilized resource in hospitals. They can provide a lot of very helpful insight to patients and medical providers about how to make decisions when the ethical issues are difficult. <laughs> a lot of times all we hear about are the ones that go to court because they garner the most publicity, but plenty of cases can and should be solved long before they see a courtroom. So now we're going to get into some of the details. Adult versus pediatric medicine, they're different. And medical ethics applies differently whether you are an adult or whether you are a child who's the patient. Adult medicine um, is the easiest to start with. The ethical priority for adults in medicine is the principle of autonomy. As long as the patient has medical capacity and legal competency, if they can think rationally about the decisions that they're making, um, they have the right to make choices, and the doctors cannot force them to choose a specific medical treatment plan. Actually, um, U.S. courts 
through a series of landmark decisions over the last 30 years, have come to the conclusion that patients are allowed to refuse medical care even if the medical teams disagree. So you may say to your doctor, you know, I do not want this treatment, and your doctor may say to you, you will die without this treatment. You must have it. We're going to give it to you. And you can say, no, I would rather die. If you are an adult patient who has legal capacity, who has legal competency, you have the right to refuse medical treatment even if it costs you your life. Um, because of that, because adults have autonomy in such a strength, it's such a strong ethical principle for adult medicine, medical providers for adults have to aim for patient-doctor relationships based on a concept called mutuality, which we'll talk about again briefly later. Basically, doctors and patients are partners in medical care. The doctor isn't the boss and the patient, you know, the employee. Um, it should be a partnership where you work together to decide, based on the patient's priorities and, and life values, what are the medical treatment plans that would make the most sense for them. So here's a quick example of how that works. Elizabeth Bouvier, in 1983, Elizabeth was a 26-year-old patient with cerebral palsy. She had a miserable life, according to her. She was in constant pain. She had been separated from her husband. She was alienated from her family. She was miserable, and she wanted to die. She checked herself into a hospital and said, I want you to provide me pain control, but I do not want you to provide me any other medical care. The hospital said, um, no we're not going to let you die. We're not going to let you just die. Um, she refused to eat, so they shoved an NG tube down her nose and um, force-fed her daily. Elizabeth took the case to court after the hospital ethics committee refused to um, hear it. Um, it went to court several times. Eventually, on appeal, there was a landmark decision that came out that basically said that Elizabeth, in support of other decisions that have been made before, had the right to refuse medical treatment, including forced feedings, even if she died as a result. This was very important. It reaffirmed that even people with severe disabilities, Elizabeth was mostly paralyzed from her cerebral palsy. There had been questions about her ability to be competent because of her physical disabilities. There were also questions about her level of depression. The courts reaffirmed that even people who have serious mental health issues and physical health issues do have the right to autonomy, even if it results in their death in medical cases, as long as they do have legal and medical capacity, which Elizabeth did. So that was very important, and it very much illustrates what adult medicine is like. So pediatric medicine is a little different. Um, children, and I'm sorry, that should say children, and other patients who are unable to make decisions, including adults with, um, who don't have medical capacity, adults who are um, strongly disabled in their cognitive capacity and don't have guardianship of themselves, um, they're called protected populations. Under the US state and federal laws, a different set of rules applies to them. And this is very important because it can be very confusing to families who don't understand why I can walk into a doctor's office and tell the doctor that, no, I'm not going to take that antibiotic. I don't want to take it. I'd rather take my chances. But I cannot walk into my child's pediatrician's office and say, my child isn't going to take that antibiotic. I don't want it, and we're going to take our chances. It's not the same set of rules. So unlike adult care, parents and guardians do not have complete autonomy. Yes, they have the right to participate in medical decision making. It's a very, very important right, and sometimes it's not given the value that it deserves, but they do not have the same right to make choices for their child as they do for themselves. This is very important to understand. It can be very confusing, and it can cause families a lot of heartache when they don't understand that this is what's happening. Um, so children require a different legal standard, not autonomy. They require a standard called the best interest standard, which means that everybody who's involved in a child's medical care, whether it's doctors, whether it's nurses, social workers, the parents, 
Everybody who's involved in making decisions for a child's care have to make decisions based on something called the child's best interests. That means it's not as important what I want, it's not as important as what the doctor wants, it's not as important what the social worker wants. The most important thing is what is best for the child. So um, doctors and guardians work cooperatively to decide what the best child's best interests are. This is not easy to determine. I mean, even if you just think about adult medical care, adults and their medical teams don't always agree on what's in the adult's best interest, but now you're trying to make a decision about what's in the best interest for somebody else who can't get in their head. They can't explain to you what they want from their life. They can't tell you all the time about their dreams and aspirations if they're two months old. So you have to make decisions of what you think are the best interests of that child, and sometimes people do not agree. Um, so in disagreements between guardians and medical teams, the medical personnel are legally required to examine whether or not guardians are acting in the best interest of a child. This is where a lot of problems start. Everybody comes to the table with good intentions. Doctors want to help the child, parents want to help their child, everybody wants to help the child, and they have very different ideas about how to do that or what it looks like. When there's a disagreement, so say, you know, just to take a trivial example, when you walk into your pediatrician's office and you say, I'm not giving my child that antibiotic, I don't believe in antibiotics, I want to use a natural remedy. You know, we hear a lot about that these days. Okay, that's not one that's likely going to go to DCF, but it is a disagreement. So even in that situation, the doctor has to sit there and think, is the parent really acting in what he or she believes is the child's best interest? Is the parent trying to help the child? Is this really what is in the child's best interest? Because if it's not, I as the medical provider am legally obligated to try and protect the child. So if concerns arise that the, the guardians are not seeking what's medically best for the child or in the child's best interest, that's where they have a legal obligation to try and provide protection for the child. Now nobody's saying that just the doctors are always right. Just because a doctor thinks something's in a child's best interest and a parent doesn't, does not necessarily mean the doctor wins. But the doctor is legally obligated to try and protect the child if he or she truly believes that the parent is making a decision that's not in the child's best interests. So that involves steps like contacting the hospital ethics committee, contacting the hospital child protection team, and contacting DCF. Now not all of these steps have to be taken in every situation. Um, and like I said, many times something like a hospital ethics committee is an underutilized resource. It can actually be a very, very good modality for resolving you know, disagreements between families and doctors and it doesn't always go there. But um, they, they are one resource. Another one is the hospital child protection team that tends to be a lot more adversarial. Obviously if they get involved, they get involved because they think you really might be abusing your child and they want to make an investigation. And the same for DCF. Although with DCF, they are legally obligated to um, look into, even if it's not an official investigation, they're legally obligated to review a complaint that they think may be reasonable if any sort of abuse is suspected. So, for example, Gabriel Zepeda. Gabriel was born in 2012. He was the two-month-old son of a Jehovah's Witness couple in Texas. He was born with congenital heart defects, and the doctors informed his parents that he would need open-heart surgery if he was going to survive. Well, as part of that procedure, as part of the, the surgery that Gabriel would require, there was going to have to be blood products used. Transfusions were going to need to be given to this child. Well, um, as many of you probably know, Jehovah's Witnesses are theologically adamantly opposed to the use of any sort of blood products. So the parents refused. They said, no, we are not going to perform the surgery on our son. The doctor said, your son will die without the surgery, and they said, then he's going to die. We do not believe that he can partake in any surgery that requires the use of blood products. Well, the doctors talked and were like, oh no, this is not in the child's best interest. This is a life 
life-threatening situation, but it's a survivable situation. If Gabriel has the surgery, he will live. So they called DCF. They contacted the hospital child protection team, and they went to court. And a judge agreed with them. A judge looked at, with the hospital. A judge looked at the circumstances in the case, and the judge said, in this instance, even though these parents believe they're doing the best thing for the child, they are not doing what the court considers the best thing for the child. They do not have what we consider to be the best interest of their child in mind. Therefore, we are going to revoke their right to make a decision in this case. And they did. The judge issued a court order that Gabriel was to be given the surgery and blood products were to be used as necessary. And that's exactly what happened. So you can see that this is very different from the case of Elizabeth Bouvier. Elizabeth was allowed to make a decision to refuse medical care even though it could cost her her life. Gabriel's parents were not allowed to make that decision. They were not. So this is how autonomy is different from the best interest standard. So doctor and patient relationships then become incredibly important. If you have a child whom you're making medical decisions for, you are partners with that child's medical team. You don't, you're not the boss. They're not the boss, your partners. So you have to work together and you have to try and work together as best as you can. Well, sometimes that's not very easy. And in fact, throughout the course of, of medical ethics and, and the history of medicine, there have been multiple different ways that doctors have approached the idea of relationships with patients. So two major models have sort of existed. Um, the first one in the long that's been around the longest is called paternalism. Comes from the word pa parents, derived from the same word as paternalism. Um, it's the idea that um, doctors have the parent figure in the relationship and the patient or the patient's representatives have the sort of child figure. We're going to talk a little bit more about it. The second one is called mutuality, and that's a more of a, a modern idea to how to approach medical relationships. The idea being that you work together, patients, doctors, everybody on the medical team works together to cooperate. So paternalism, like I said, is the idea that medical providers know better than patients. So patients should accept medical teams as the decision makers. Now there's a sort of basic logic to that that's semi-apparent. If you've gone through medical school and you have advanced degrees and you've been doing this for 30 years, chances are you do know better about what the medical options in a situation are than the patient. That's just common sense. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know better what the best choice for a patient would be. Um, and this is where things become a little more difficult. In a paternalistic model, the doctor can say to you, well, you're wrong. I don't care whether you think this is the best choice for yourself or not. They could say to Elizabeth Bouvier, which is what they tried to do, Elizabeth, you are wrong. You do not need to die. We are not going to let you die. We're going to force feed you if you will not eat. The end. That was a very paternalistic relationship. So this was the standard doctor-patient relationship um, solidly up until the 1960s and through most of the 70s. Um, it took a series of major court cases in this country to rule that forced paternalism or hard paternalism is unconstitutional for adults in the United States of America. So if you have capacity to make decisions for yourself, the doctor cannot force a paternalistic relationship on you. That is a violation of your constitutional rights. That is why you have autonomy, even if it results in your death. So now, adult medical providers cannot force patients to accept care choices without a court order which they will not usually get unless there's a lot of evidence that shows that the adult patient cannot make decisions for him or herself. All right, mutuality. Um, this is the idea that the patient and the medical team work together to make choices in medical care and that um, patient and family priorities count. So you may not have medical knowledge, maybe you haven't gone to medical school, you don't have a doctorate, 
Um, you don't have specifically scientific training that tells you what the best medical choice is, but you know what the best priorities are for your family, for yourself. You know what you want out of your life, you have ideas about how you want your life to go, what is important to you, what is not. In a mutual relationship, the idea is that these priorities make a difference and that they should be given weight at the medical decision-making table in addition to medical information. So you and your doctor both have valuable information to contribute to the decision. So this is considered now by the American Medical Association, the Academy of Pediatrics, um, all major medical associations here and in the Western world throughout Europe and the United Kingdom as the most ethical relationship between a doctor and patients. This is what everybody is supposed to be working toward. Doesn't always happen, but this is the goal. Um, a subset of this has developed that's called patient and family-centered medicine. Basically, this is the philosophical idea and approach to medicine that the patient is the center of care. It used to be that the doctor was the center of care. They were the ones who had all of the um, ability to make choices. They were the ones who knew the most. The hospital system was set up to accommodate doctors. Well, now the hospital system is supposed to be set up to accommodate patients and their families. Patient-centered care, family-centered care, you've probably heard that. The average hospital, if you walk in, you're going to see um, something called, you know, the patient bill of rights posted on a wall. It's usually in a public place, in many public places, sometimes on every floor of the hospital. You will see, you know, that it says things like, patients have the right to medical treatment, patients have the right to contribute to their medical decision making, patients have rights. That is the outcome of patient-centered care. There has been a big push, especially in the last 20 years, to make patient and family-centered care more prominent because it's easy to post a bill of rights on the wall of a hospital. It's very difficult to then translate that into the way that doctors and patients actually interact with each other. It takes a lot of training. It takes a lot of reinforcement. And sometimes it's hard work. Families can be, they come in a wide variety of shapes and sizes with different priorities. And it can be very difficult to have family in room A who, you know, only wants natural medicine and doesn't want to have anything to do with, you know, different types of, of Western medical interventions and family in room B who wants everything you can throw at them. They want every intervention they've ever heard of and they, you know, Dr. Google is their best friend and they're bringing ideas to you that are, you just make no sense whatsoever. And yet you still have to try and work with both of these families and not treat either one of them as if their their priorities and their ideas are just wrong. So how does this tie into the concepts of medical child abuse and neglect? So medical child abuse and neglect, MCA and MN, is how you will sometimes see them abbreviated in the medical literature. You know, well, first off, one of the things that makes it hard is I can't just say to you, this is what it is and this is what it isn't. Because right now, medical child abuse and medical neglect, they actually lack concrete legal or medical definitions. Um, we can tell you what the basic idea is, that it's abuse where a caregiver induces or worsens illness in a child or somebody in their protection. Um, the abused child appears to be very ill, but actually they're healthy, or at least healthier than they appear to be. This is the concept. But there actually are no strict definitions of, well, this is medical child abuse, this is not medical child abuse, this, it always looks this way, it always looks that way. Those things haven't been figured out yet. This is a relatively new concept. In the 1970s, there was a doctor whose name was Roy Meadows who invented the term Munchausen syndrome by proxy for an idea that he encountered when he saw um, mothers who were doing things like suffocating their children or poisoning them, like literally attempting to murder their children in, in, a, in an environment where they were also presenting the child as very ill. So. At that time, there was a very clear definition. If you're trying to murder your child and present it as an illness, you are abusing that child. 
Now the concept has become much more muddy and ambiguous, but this is a basic idea. So it is thought, and that's in italics because we actually have no evidence to prove one way or another, the theory is that caregivers who do this, they manipulate medical staff to believe that there's an illness by exaggerating or causing the symptoms. Obviously, if you catch somebody on video causing the symptoms, you know that's what they're doing. When it's, um, most cases don't involve that though, that's actually very rare, very rare. Um, the majority of accusations that are brought these days have to do with the idea that somebody is exaggerating symptoms or otherwise trying to manipulate medical staff. And that's very difficult to prove. There's no research to really show what's happening, what's not happening. It's just an area that leads a lot, a lot, a lot more investigation. So false medical and medical neglect and medical abuse accusations. Um, Unfortunately, the rate of false accusations has been increasing um, in the last few years, increasing across the country. It's not Massachusetts, it's not you know, Rhode Island, it's not Florida, it's everywhere. And actually they've been increasing throughout um, much of Europe and the United Kingdom as well. This is a concept that is, the concept of looking for medical child abuse in your patients has started to make a lot of headway and one of the, um, the unfortunate side effects of that is that suddenly now you're getting a lot of families who are not abusing their children are also being accused of this. Um, so false accusations often, that should say affect, not afflict, but they do afflict also, caregivers of children with unknown or controversial illnesses. So a lot of times you'll find that if a doctor is in a situation where they just cannot figure out what is wrong with this kid, they've run lots of tests or they've run the tests that they think are reasonable and they still have no answers, then they may start to think, well, how do I know that this child even is really sick. Maybe somebody's just making up the illness. And that it can be a situation where um, an accusation is presented. And so if you unfortunately have a child who is genuinely ill, but is ill with an illness or a disease that people don't know what it is, it's difficult to diagnose, nobody's ever heard of it, or they just can't find it yet. Unfortunately, you're more at risk for a false accusation. So right now, that means that mitochondrial diseases can often be targets of false accusations. Mitochondrial diseases are not rare, as we know, but they are difficult to diagnose. Very difficult to diagnose. In fact, there's a lot of professional disagreement over how to diagnose people, who to diagnose, and what to do with them when you have diagnosed them. Say everybody agrees that, you know, somebody has a mitochondrial disease. What do you do? How do you treat them? How do you not treat them? All of these things are under debate by doctors, not even just families, but medical providers themselves cannot agree on how to diagnose and how to treat, which means that it is a very controversial field of medicine at this time, which means that unfortunately people who are involved, both medical professionals and families, are very vulnerable to accusations of wrongdoing. So. We need more research to understand why false accusations happen. We need to understand more about what causes them, what makes doctors feel that they need to bring these accusations. Is it a misunderstanding? Is it fear? Is it just you know, a genuine disagreement? And right now that research hasn't been done. People are working on it, but this is an area that needs to be developed more. So we suspect, those of us who have done some research, myself included, suspect that there are definitely factors on both sides. You can't just blame the patients and you can't just blame the doctors. This is. Um, a problem that both sides contribute to. So there may be misunderstanding of the best interest standards by families. Families walk into a doctor's office, they want to say, no, we don't want this treatment for our child. The doctor says, well, sit down, we need to discuss it. And they say, we don't want to discuss it. The answer is no. And you know, stomp their foot and stand on that. I said no, and I mean no, and that's it. 
well, that's, you, you can't go about pediatric medicine that way. It has to be cooperative. So if you're not willing to work with the doctors and the medical teams, well, then you're going to be much more liable to have an accusation of medical abuse brought against you because you're refusing to sit down at the table and conduct pediatric medicine the way it has to go. So when families misunderstand the best interest standards of how they have to work with a child's medical team, that can make them um, more open to accusations. Another thing is insufficient medical provider education on rare diseases. A lot of times doctors will just, they just won't understand that when they see a certain set of symptoms that that could be a legitimate medical problem. Families who um, have children with osteogenesis imperfecta experience this a lot. That's brittle bone disease. They'll show up when the children are very young. They'll show up in the ER before anybody knows that their child has brittle bone disease and they'll have broken bones all over their body. And of course the medical provider, the very first thing they do is call DCF because they think, you know, oh my gosh, this poor child has just been terribly abused. Well, and the families are very upset because obviously they haven't abused the child and the doctor just doesn't have enough information about how osteogenesis imperfecta presents. There are multiple different types. Some of them are very rare and difficult to diagnose. That is a very common illness that um, can be involved in an accusation of medical or physical child abuse. So another issue that can be a problem is lack of training and family-centered care for providers. Sometimes doctors have a, and nurses and social workers have a very difficult time dealing with quote-unquote difficult patients. Difficult families, difficult patients. Everybody knows they're out there. None of us are perfect. And if you have a family member who's seriously ill, that may not encourage you to be on your best behavior. In fact, sometimes that can encourage you to be on your worst behavior. You're stressed. You are confused. You're upset. You're anxious. And sometimes you're rude. And the lack of training in family-centered care, the lack of resources that doctors have to just sit down with the family, to bring them to the table, to help them understand why they need to work together to help them calm down, can really be difficult, and that can lead to hostility developing between the medical team and the family, and the doctors really getting the idea or the impression that you are just refusing to work with them, which again makes you open to an accusation of medical abuse. So there are then just genuine disagreements about what's in the child's best interest. Doctor wants this, another doctor wants that, parent wants this, nurse wants that, social worker thinks that they need a totally different solution, and everybody just disagrees. Everybody really has the child's or the family's best interest at heart. They all genuinely want to make a difference and to help this family, to help this child get better, and they just have a very different idea of how to do that and what it means. Again, this is something that is unfortunately seen a lot in the mitochondrial medicine community right now because you may go see one specialist who thinks the best way to treat a child with mitochondrial disease is treatment plan A. A different specialist thinks it's treatment plan B. A different specialist thinks that you shouldn't have a treatment plan whatsoever. And somebody else is like, how do we even know that this child has mitochondrial disease? Everybody's working in the child's best interest, they think, but they can't agree on what to do. And so then you have families who are completely caught in the middle. Do I listen to A, B, or C? Do I go look for a different diagnosis? Do I just go home and forget about the whole thing? Like, this, again, can create situations where people intensely disagree with each other, and they're not even just upset with the family. They're upset with their other medical colleagues, which unfortunately, again, can leave families open to accusations of wrongdoing or medical child abuse. And then there are probably a lot more factors that contribute. This is a very complicated topic. It's a very complicated problem. There is not an easy solution. There's unfortunately no one, two, three magic for this one. It's going to take a lot of research and working together with patients, families, and medical providers to try and reduce the rate of false accusations and to help um, move medical care to a place where people can sit down with their disagreements and really work through them without the same level of hostility or suspicion developing. So 
basically now to move on to where Jim is going to come in. This is medical ethics. This is how people make decisions. If you can understand why doctors think that the way that they do, if you understand what responsibilities they have to balance with protecting people's rights, but also protecting their health, with protecting you know, the rights of children and vulnerable populations, but also trying to give credence to what the families are saying. You can see that you know, it's a difficult job for a medical provider from an ethics perspective. They have a lot of things to balance. The patient has a lot of things to balance also, but I think the one take-home message that we can get is that to sit down and work cooperatively is always the best approach whenever possible. Um, whenever you can, go back to the table. Try again to find a compromise. Try again to find another solution. Try and really work with the team, you know, say things like, we have our family members' best interests at heart. We really do want what is in their best interest. Help us figure out how to get there and what the best way to do that would be. So I'm going to turn it over now to Julie again, and thank you very much. Thank you, Jessica. Very good. Very good. Now I would like to introduce to you an attorney from Massachusetts. Uh, attorney Jim Leonary has come, uh, has become a leading authority in a very specialized field of complex child abuse cases, including medical child abuse. He has handled a number of cases in rare disease, such as mitochondrial disease and PANDAS, as well as hundreds of abuse and neglect cases involving child, physical child abuse, severe neglect, and substance abuse. He regularly appears in juvenile probate and district courts across the Commonwealth, as well as the Fair Hearing Board at the Department of Children and Families. He has been handling child protection cases for over 17 years, representing parents and children in often very complicated abuse and neglect cases in juvenile and probate court has become a significant component to his practice. Jim has, to my own appreciation, and I'm sure to all of yours as well, agreed most eagerly to come and speak with us today on this topic. To help us understand the legal process of such situations that seem to hover over patients who are affected by a rare disease such as MITO, and to try to help us find a way to, better able, to be better able to advocate for ourselves and our child in placed in an unthinkable situation. Please welcome Attorney Jim and Eric. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for having me. You know, when Julie uh, and Christy had asked uh, whether I might be willing to come here today, uh, to be honest with you, it didn't take long for me to decide very quickly that I wanted to come here today. And the reason why I wanted to come is because, quite simply, I'm very passionate about this topic. It's something that I've, as Julie mentioned, I believe I wrote that, that little bio, but uh, I've been doing this now for at least 17 years. I've been a lawyer longer than that, but I started to handle abuse and neglect cases um, around 1997, I think. And I've had a lot of different cases come up that were very challenging. But I gotta be honest, the most difficult cases have just come along in the last three to five years. And these are these so-called medical child abuse cases. Now, the first thing I want to say is this. Um, 
there used to be, you know, and I'm going to ask you some questions in a few minutes about what you know in terms of the terms that I'll be using. But, you know, it used to be the, as, uh, as Jessica, and by the way, before I continue, I want to just thank Jessica. She already made my job much, much easier today with her wonderful presentation. Thanks, Jessica. She's, she is a real asset to this field. Uh, and frankly, we need people like Jessica to really push this uh, because as you can see, we're really just at the beginning, just at the beginning of public awareness and change, which is, as you can see, uh, gravely needed. So back in the 80s and 90s, there were these cases called, you know, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, uh, very difficult child abuse cases. Um, there were cases involving, most of the time, um, cases like shaken baby syndrome, uh, physical child abuse involving broken bones to babies and uh, bruising and whatnot. And those were the typical, more extreme, but the more typical cases that we would see again in the 80s and 90s. Um, and they, science started to improve, like for example with, the, with shaken baby cases, uh, there used to be uh, what they call the triad, uh, that if you had these particular symptoms, um, hospitals that handle these types of cases automatically concluded it had to be shaken baby syndrome. Well that's shifted. Uh, the science has changed dramatically on that. Um, Fast forward to a few years ago, uh, all of a sudden you have these new cases, so-called exotic cases, involving pandas, pans, mitochondrial disease, where you're not dealing with broken bones anymore, you're dealing with very complicated uh, constellation of symptoms and uh, very difficult diseases to diagnose properly. Now. Let me ask you a few questions. Who's ever heard of Bader 5, the Bader 5 psychiatric ward? Raise your hand. Who knew about that before the Justina Pelletier case? All right, so fewer hands go up. Let me ask you a few more questions. Who knows what a 51A is? Did you know about that before the Justina Pelletier case? All right. 51A is a report that reporters, mandated reporters, and non-mandated reporters can file uh, alleging abuse and neglect to the Department of Children and Families. Um, who knew uh, about child protection teams in hospitals? Very few hands go up. All right, so here we have, and I'm gonna just walk you through the scenario, and I know now, I'm not going to rehash everything you've read about the Justina Pelletier case uh, because I think people now are pretty much fairly familiar with how that happened. But let me just say this, and I've seen it in a number of cases I've handled, some that never went to court. Fortunately, actually, most of my cases where I've gotten involved early enough with the family, they didn't end up in court. And and I'll tell you my thoughts about why that may be uh, in a few minutes. It's not simply because they hired me. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated. Um, but 
there's something to be said about having an advocate early on in the process that can really help keep others from trampling over your rights. So, you know that, again, and I don't want this to be all about the Pelletier case, but it is a good illustration of how these things can happen and devolve very quickly and hopefully and for years to come it will be an educational tool. Now let's hope she gets home sooner rather than later. But again, I think we'll be studying this case for years to come. So think about it. Who knew that you could have a renowned expert in a field like mitochondrial disease refer a family to another hospital for a consult and exam and in no time you have another round of doctors that you don't even know and by the way they don't even know your child suddenly making huge decisions about her care and frankly about your access. Now, we don't know all the behind the scenes maneuverings that were happening in those first couple of days. We don't know exactly who made the phone call, who made any kind of decision to go and get the child protection team involved. But I can tell you this, I've had my own cases where, again, experts disagree, and in some cases, even within Children's Hospital, you can have a multidisciplinary team of experts working toward a common goal, as I've seen. But, well, and let's say 90% of them are pretty much on, you know, they're on the same page. They see it this way. Oh, it's mitochondrial. Or at least we need to pursue this as a legitimate and potential diagnosis, or PANDAS, or some other disease. But one or two disagree. They disagree with that. And they don't just disagree, they disagree vehemently. Because for whatever reason, they don't believe in it. They think it's junk science. They think it's junk medicine. It's not legitimate. And guess what they get to do? They get to make a phone call. They get to bring in the child protection team. And all of a sudden, the doctors that you've been working with passionately and rationally pushed aside. They're not even able to communicate with you anymore. No, you have a new team of so-called child abuse experts who are suddenly pushing everybody aside and just coming in and taking over. And they're silencing all the other experts. Now, we're not going to solve that problem today but we need to recognize it's a problem. It's a major problem, and it's not just happening at Children's Hospital. 
There are other institutions across the country where this is happening. Now what happened? Back in 1970 or thereabouts when the child protection team was formed, I do believe it was formed with the best of intentions. What we need to find out, and I do think we're going to find out, is what happened over those last 30 and 40 years. What happened? Where did it change from a, a, a team of professionals that, that would come in uh, with a child with broken bones or potential shaken baby and do their analysis and, you know, most often maybe get it right to a situation now where you've got some really challenging di potential diagnoses that are, are, are flummoxing the best medi uh, medical experts in the world. And what, suddenly a team of so-called child abuse experts can come in and say, well, you're all wrong. No, we're right. You're wrong. And that's exactly what's, kind of, what's happening. So that's going to have to work itself out. And I do believe that this needs to be examined by outsiders to figure out what is wrong with this current system. There needs to be, in my view, there needs to be, again, some third party that is able to say, time out. Before you go and call the Department of Children and Families, which I'll talk to you more about in a minute, about why that's a bad decision. When we know that there are, dis there, there are disagreements among experts, before you do that, can't we have a review? Can't we just sit back, take a deep breath, and talk about it? By the way, something that Dr. Corson wanted to do in the Pelletier case. All he wanted was to have the whole team to get together and have a sit down and talk about it, figure out who is disagreeing with whom and what we can do about it. And he wasn't able to get that to happen. He wasn't even able to get back in the hospital and see Jessica Pelletier, his patient. So, let me just go through some of my observations, but also how the system currently works, what you all may need to do, might want to do, uh, and to, to protect yourselves, and to uh, at least have more information going in to this process. Right now, the system, for lack of a better word, is rigged against parents. Parents of children, and frankly, not just parents, but adults. Adults with these d diseases and disorders. And let me just run through you how it works. So let's, take, let's go back to the hospital and let's, let's assume now that someone disagrees with some other opinions. Instead of having some sort of a review, even maybe an ethics review, that person makes a phone call to the Department of Children and Families as a mandated reporter. Now, who knows what a mandated reporter is? Okay. So a mandated reporter, by statute, is typically someone like a physician 
therapists, police officers, teachers, pediatricians. So experts who deal with children in some capacity, typically. They're required to, re to report what we call a 51A to the Department of Children and Families when they suspect abuse or neglect. That is to say that a child may be the victim of abuse or neglect. They are not allowed by law to render credibility or to make credibility decisions. They're not supposed to, for example, when a child comes to school and says, my daddy beat me last night. They're not really supposed to say, Johnny, I don't think you're telling the truth. They report it. And it's another topic for another day, but I've been getting four to six calls a day on those types of cases where a child actually reports at school or says something you know, to his, his or her pediatrician. So that's a topic for another day. But that's actually something that's exploding as well. So now you've got that phone call. A screener at the Department of Children and Families now has to make a, a decision to either screen in or screen out this, this report. But what do you think the chances are when a doctor from Children's Hospital or MGH or really any other hospital calls in and says, we really think this parent is abusing their child. Why? Well, we think that they're you know, seeking unnecessary treatment and over-medicalizing, a new term, by the way. Um, what do you think that screener is going to do? Do you think that screener has any ability, uh, with the expertise, to really say, really? Why do you think that? No, they are going to screen it in. They screen it in, and now you're on, you're off to the races with a 51B investigation. Now, quick crash course in this. Chapter 119, section 51A and section 51B. 51Bs, under a new model, relatively new, last five or six years or so, the department has, has adopted this new approach. Uh, probably get it wrong, it's the integrated casework management model, where they're now able to uh, treat certain 51Bs as formal investigations like traditional, the traditional approach, where now they've got 15 business days to make a, uh, to do their investigation and then make a decision whether to support or not support the allegations. And now they, now, they have the flexibility now to do what's called an initial assessment same length of time, 15 business days, unless it's an emergency 51A, in which case they have to do a five-day investigation. That said, when you're dealing with these types of cases, they're almost always going to be a formal investigation, although I have had a couple of cases where that's not the case. They were still treated as initial assessment. That's important because it's a, it's a different level of risk. So they've already done sort of a risk assessment and they've made a calculation that, all right, we're not clear that this is off the rails yet. We think we, if we can do an initial assessment and get into it a little bit, we can figure this out and maybe support the family and provide some services. But they're not thinking 
Uh, are we this close to removal of a child? Which is some of the calculations involved with an investigation. How close are we to calling our attorneys in? How close are we in showing up at the door with a police officer to remove this child? So, here's the problem in a lot of these complicated medical cases. There's no way specifically to get a social worker who has the expertise that would be required, really, to take a step back and not reflexively say, well, it's Children's Hospital, and more than that, it's the child protection team at Children's or some other facility or some other institution. Therefore, it must be child neglect or abuse. You don't have someone typically who is able to set, step back and, and, and say, you know, I'm going to make sure that I have my own independent judgment on this and I'm not going to simply rely on this other authority. Now, in at least one, or, one case that I've had, actually in a couple of cases that I've had, we were fortunate enough to get a social worker, an investigator, to not do that, not do the typical response, which is, all right, this is a no-brainer, right? We can pretty much wrap this up in a couple of days. It's got to be child abuse. So, but here was the difference. I asked you, I presented before in the beginning, what can make the difference? Here's what can make the difference. You have an advocate who doesn't let them. Who doesn't let them simply make that quick decision and support this thing and potentially put your name in the central registry of the Department of Children and Families where if you ever wanted to adopt a child, be a foster parent, teach or do something like that, someone's not going to do a background check and find your name for support of a, an abuse charge of children that could derail your efforts in doing what you want to do. Like clients of mine who are in the business, teachers, therapists, uh, nurses, their careers could be ruined, absolutely ruined. So one of the things you need to do, and again, I don't know. Here's the trap that parents are in. Here's the trap. Most of the cases that I've seen that have gotten to a point either where I've seen it go through the investigation, unfortunately in my cases they've pretty much all been um, unsupported or at least the department closed its case fairly quickly at the end of the assessment. But here's the trap the parents are in. And it starts at the, at the pediatrician's office and maybe at the hospital. You, you go in with knowledge. What a concept. You've already been doing some work. You've been really working this thing. You've been, you've, you're, you're struggling to find out what is wrong with your child. So you're doing all that research. And you have, you have a personality that's assertive. It's not going to just simply, frankly, be a doormat where you're going to just let others tell you what to do. Those are the people who have been getting caught up in this. 
It's the people that stand up and say, wait a minute, can't we go over here and ask someone else about this? Because next thing you know, it, it's, it's, you're being questioned. You're pushy. You're too pushy. You're asking too many questions. You're trying to, you're talking to this doctor over there on behind my back. I didn't know that. And now I don't trust you. Right? There's a lot of ego involved in these cases. You go to the pediatrician, you start telling the pediatrician, look, I want a referral for this. And suddenly the pediatrician's like, I don't know, maybe you're harming your child. So I think, again, it helps at some point early on in the process to step back and don't let you be that person who looks like suddenly you're asking too much. You're making too many phone calls. You're, you know, I've heard that you work the phones. You get all these second opinions. We don't like that. Well, I'm not saying you need to get a lawyer every time you go to the doctors. But boy, I'll tell you, it makes a big difference when all of a sudden you're faced with a social worker and you're saying, wait a minute. I'm telling them, you are not going to simply roll over here. I want you to talk to these other doctors. The one in Maryland, the one in Connecticut, the one in New Jersey, the one in DC. I want you to talk to these people. Why? Because you're not hearing them. Because you're not hearing their voices when you talk to the child protection team, who think they, are, they have it all figured out, right? And if they don't talk to them, first of all, they're not doing their job, because they're supposed to. But I will say, too, too often, they won't. They'll stop. They'll stop at children's. They won't go any further. That's just wrong. And it's, it's dangerous. I had a case turn around, a case turn around, when it looked like they were going straight to the courthouse. When I finally got this, this investigator to say, time out, please, come to the house, see this child. You tell me if you think all she needs is therapy. Really? This kid can't even get up. He's, she's crawling on the floor. When the mother leaves her side for a second, she's banging her head against, she's completely mute. She doesn't talk. She's now, she has some Tourette's-like uh, symptoms. You're telling me that because Children's is telling you or some other facility is telling you that what she really needs to be is in a psychiatric facility or she needs therapy, that this parent is, should be charged with neglect or abuse just because she wants, she thinks there's more to it than that. Yeah, there might be a psychiatric component, sure. No one's saying there, there, that may not be a problem, but it's not the only problem, and it certainly isn't being caused by a psychiatric disorder. So, just, you gotta understand that these cases can turn on a dime very quickly. You gotta understand that sometimes you could be the problem unwittingly. But do not, for a second, just say, okay, you're right, 
I must be wrong. No, do not do that. You have a child who is sick, who is very ill, and you know what? You don't have to look any further than the Justina Pelletier case to see what good came of 10, 11, 12 months of the care she received and not the care that she had before or was trying to get. Her condition hasn't improved, it's gotten worse. So, let me tell you, once it gets, let's say, it, it got past DCF, they supported it. And let's say in the worst case now, they are taking you to court. Okay, now we got a real problem. Why? Tell you why. Because after years and years and years of decisions by the courts, by the higher courts, the appeals court and the Supreme Judicial Court, and in some rare cases, the Supreme Court of the United, of the United States, much, really, most of the power, most of the authority, not just in terms of like what happens outside of court, but in the courtroom lies with the Department of Children and Families, okay? Just based on pure procedure and pure evidence, it lies with the Department of Children and Families. Now remember, when the department takes a case like this, that came from, say, you know, the hospital, a child protection team. They're taking that position, right? I've yet to see them go that far and take a parent to court or parents to court and really take a different position. It's almost always that position of the hospital. So you've got the hospital and you've got a state agency now, right, who are aligned. And remember when I said earlier about the phone call that was made? Often the department relies on experts at, say, Children's Hospital for their own evaluations in other cases, right? So the point being, now all of a sudden you walk into court on what's called a 72-hour hearing. Anybody hear what that term is, 72-hour hearing? All right. Now, interestingly, a 72-hour hearing, which is by statute, it, it requires a parent to be able to go into court within 72 hours of a petition being filed, a petition for care and protection, to force the Department of Children and Families to prove that they should have, the department should have custody and not you, right? So. It, used, it was designed so that parents could, could not have to wait beyond 72 hours, right? Because it's unfair, right? Except here's the problem in these cases. You need more than 72 hours to put your case together. You don't have time to line up experts. What you need to have any reasonable chance to go against the experts of the child protection team and the experts of the other doctors who are involved in these cases at these hospitals. You don't have time. So if you can't get a continuance, boy, you're in trouble already. But you know what's even worse? So the standard at that 
level, that initial temporary custody hearing is preponderance of the evidence. Now, we all have heard of, from TV shows and whatnot, beyond a reasonable doubt, right? That's the criminal standard. It's like, a beyond, it's like to a moral certainty that something is true, that something happened, that you're guilty. Preponderance of the evidence is 51%. Is it more or less likely that this child is at imminent risk of abuse or neglect? Right? And you have one judge making that determination at that stage, which is what happened in the Pelletier case. Well, let's take a look at what goes into evidence right off the bat. Remember that, that 51A I told you about? that report that, is, that the, the screener writes up and that could take a couple of days to actually get finished before they actually pass it on to the uh, investigator, that goes in to set the stage. And 98% of that is what they've already been told by the hospital. So that goes into evidence to set the stage. So the judge now says, okay, this is why we're here, right? The 51B report that now that, that social worker, that investigator, had to write up in 15 days, business days, goes in as primary fact, right? It goes in as evidence, as primary fact, for you now, as the parent, to have to dispute, have to bring additional evidence to hopefully challenge. But you know how tough that is? when that primary fact has opinion, well, supposed to not have opinions, does it always? Sure. Do you, have, do you always, as the practitioner, as the lawyer, have time, if the case goes like that in 72 hours, to file motions to strike some of these things? Probably not. So it goes in, you got opinion, you've got hearsay, Oh, you know, she said this, that doctor said that, I was told this, comes in. Now you got your experts coming in, your child abuse experts. What do you think when you got a child abuse expert and a child abuse case coming in, how do you think that's generally going to be received by practically every juvenile court in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts? Right? Do you think that the judge at that juncture isn't going to give the benefit of the doubt to the department since it's only a temporary order? All right. And if you, the parent, or in some cases the child's attorney, but that's rare, most child's children's attorney, when you're dealing with young kids and infants, they use a thing called substituted judgment because that child isn't old enough to have a formed, educated, or informed opinion. So almost always, as are just my observation, over 17 plus years, they will take the department's position at that hearing. And quite often, by the end of the case, they'll still have that position. So now you got, think about this. Parents are over here. The department they're experts from the hospital and child's counsel uh, over here. 
And you're going to have a hearing, and if you don't have an expert of the caliber of, I won't mention names, but certain individuals who often testify in these cases for the hospitals, you don't have much of a chance to actually get past the initial hurdle. And what ends up happening? Well, we've seen it. That child is placed in the department's custody until a hearing on the merits that could take months and in some cases years before you actually have a hearing. And boy, that's tough. Lots of things can happen in a year. Lots of things. Not the least of which your child isn't getting the care he or she needs. So these are, as I alluded to in the beginning, the most difficult cases I've had to handle. I used to think, you know, the broken bone cases, the shaken baby cases were, were challenging. I really did. And they are. They are. These cases take it to a whole other level. Why? Because, as Jessica pointed out brilliantly, the medicine, we haven't gotten to a place yet. Just the science, the science isn't there yet. The medicine isn't there yet. We're still in its formative stages where you're going to get disagreements among these high-level experts. Uh, there isn't, a, you know, I'm thinking about the DSM and some of the psychiatric disorders where it gets to a point where you can pretty much define things, right? That's not where we're at yet. But it actually makes this, this process that we're in even more unfair, more unfair. If that is the case, which is true, then why is it that one side who disagrees gets to have the entire apparatus of the state on its side? Why is that? How is that fair? It's not fair. It is not fair. But I never said this was a fair process, did I? I said it was rigged, unfortunately. And I don't mean that term to mean, you know, there's a conspiracy, because I don't buy into, you know, the conspiracy. I, I know there might be some legitimacy to some of these things, but I'm not a conspiracist. I'm, I'm not a, uh, a radical, you know, for example, I think the Department of Children and Families does some good work. I'm not one to say we should just scrap the department. God help us if, you know, some of the cases I've seen over the years, we didn't have the department involved. You'd have a lot of dead kids, right? So there's no, it makes no sense to simply attack this state agency. It really doesn't. And they're under siege now, obviously. But it does need some revamping. And one of the things that I'd like to see, and I know Jessica and I um, have talked about this, and uh, I've reached out to some of our uh, legislators. It would be helpful to really take a good look at how, for example, these types of cases, these medical cases, are handled. Now, I'll give you an example. When, when these institutional um, 
51 A's are investigated. And I'll give you, you know, the uh, foster families, foster parents, uh, daycare providers and whatnot. They go straight to a, 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 uh, an SIU unit in Boston at the Department of Children and Families. And they investigate those cases, right? Not the, the, aerial, the area regional offices and their workers. No, it goes to a, I would think, a, a, a unit that has some additional expertise in handling these types of cases. And I think that's what's needed for these types of cases. Now, Jessica pointed out, well, you know, because of the Pelletier case, this whole term medical child abuse has come, become a household name. I mean, how many people heard of this before? Medical child abuse. All right? But very few. And it's not a term, by the way, you're going to find at the Department of Children and Families. No. It's a term that has sprung from the child protection teams and the media. That's where it's come from, for the most part. The problem with the department with these cases is this. The way the law is right now, they have two choices when they determine how are we going to Well, I mentioned they have two avenues to pursue, formal investigations and then these initial assessments. But up front, in terms of whether there's been a violation, if you will, uh, a, a, an abuse to a child, they have two choices abuse or neglect. Both terms have definitions. I encourage you to read them. Really. Read these definitions and understand, first of all, how easy it is to be accused of and have be support and be supported to have a 51A supported against you for neglect. It is so easy for a parent to be charged with neglect and have that charge stick. Read that definition. Actually, I actually have it on my website, but you can find it uh, you know, wherever you want to find it. The department has it too, and it's also uh, in the regulations, their regulations. But abuse is a whole other definition. And you read that one, and you read neglect, and you know what happens? A funny thing happens with these medical cases. They're not, if they support, they don't support on abuse. Wouldn't you think they would? Because it's medical child abuse, right? No, because they can't make it, they can't pigeonhole that into that definition, right? Because it's talking about physical abuse. So what do they have to do? They have to support on neglect. And let, let me tell you how easy it is. Most of the uh, neglect cases I see, two things they find. Either lack of supervision or a failure of the parent to provide minimal emotional stability and growth. Really? That's it. That's all they need. We think this mother over here, well, she's ignoring a clear problem that this child is having uh, psychologically. She doesn't have her in therapy. 
Therefore, we think that she's neglectful because she's not providing a, the minimal emotional stability and growth of that child. That's all it takes. That's all it ne they need. And, you know, I do a lot of these fair hearings, these administrative appeals. And if, if it's neglect, they're tough. They're tough to get uh, reversed because of that, right? So let's talk about what you guys as parents need to think about and, and perhaps do. Again, you're on, a, you're on a high wire going into these things, right? You lean too much this way, you'll be accused of something. You lean this way, something else. It's not a comfortable spot. You call too much, you make too many phone calls to your pediatrician, we got a problem, right? He's thinking or she's thinking. What's going on with this parent? So the first thing is you hope, you hope you can form a good working relationship with your pediatrician, right? Jessica was talking about this mutuality uh, model. Yeah, that's what you need. Um, you need somehow to really get through to that pediatrician who you are as a parent and understand that and, and, and be right up front with them. Look, you may get calls from me, right? And, and it's because I'm really concerned, right? And if, let's take, take mitochondrial uh, disease for, as an example. So it's a complicated disorder, right? And you know that pediatrician doesn't truly have the expertise to weigh in too heavily on that, right? And let me take a step back. Remember I told you that pediatrician is a mandated reporter? So all she needs or he needs is just to suspect. And let's be frank, really, it isn't even suspicion. It's this is above my pay grade. I don't want to deal with this anymore because I don't know what's going on. So I'm going to just simply report this thing. And by the way, send you to Children's Hospital, which I've seen many times. I mean, literally, drive, get in the car, go to Children's. I'll be making that phone call now. I've seen that. And I've seen it, unfortunately, to a parent, not in a mito case, but in a physical abuse case with a second child when the first case is still pending. That's got to be an uncomfortable ride, going right into the hornet's nest again, because your pediatrician says, I got to do this. I got to make the phone call. But clearly, especially if, and, he, he, and here's, a, here's a scenario that I've seen play out. I had a case where, a pandas case where the first go around and then the second go around. By the way, a lot of these cases have more than one go around, more than one 50A, a 51A reported. So I had one last November and then a year later, another one's filed. And they had to go through the whole thing again. Now, fortunately, never went to court and twice we got the department to close its case. 
right? They wanted to keep it open originally. The first one was on the brink of a care and protection. Didn't happen. But the big complaint that, the, that, that, that DCF had was this. Well, we're concerned that no one, there's no one lead person, a go-to person, that knows everything, right? Knows what this doctor's doing over here, or what that one's doing over there. Because, you know, you know that these cases have multiple experts involved, right? You've got different symptoms and different things going on. And they really wanted to keep the case open so they could make sure that that was going to fall into place. And it took quite an effort to finally get to them, them to realize two things. One, their expectation was just unrealistic. Not going to happen. There's never going to be, I wish it were that way. Except, except in that case, we're waiting for this penis clinic to open at the MGH. That solved that problem, finally, a year later, right? But boy, it was touch and go for a while. Now let's say you don't have a clinic, you don't have a mito clinic, where pretty much all the resources could be right there. You don't have that. Do you think, and this was the expectation, do you think that a pediatrician is gonna wanna be that lead person, the go-to person? with experts in Maryland, Connecticut, New Jersey. Come on. And I finally told the department, you're dreaming. It's never going to happen. Not only because it's just, it's unwieldy and, and, and frankly unfair to try to put a pediatrician in that position, but because no pediatrician is going to accept that responsibility. And one of the problems they had was, well, how, how did, this parent didn't take their child, hadn't been seen by the pediatrician in six to eight months, and only had seen that one, that new one, another sign, a new pediatrician, red flag, once. But what we had to point out, again, advocacy, what we had to point out was, yeah, that's true. This pediatrician has only seen this kid once in a year. But you know what? This pediatrician's gotten all the notes from all the other experts, has kept, been kept in the loop, and there has been no reason, no medical reason, when you're dealing with all these other experts who are treating this child, for the pediatrician to be doing anything other than say, good luck, and, and I'll be here if you need me. So again, these are the kinds of things that you got to push back on. You got to tell the department. You, frankly, you got to tell sometimes Children's or another hospital. And I don't know if you're going to, you'll probably never persuade the child protection team if they think it's abuse. But hopefully, before that happens, there are ways to be an advocate, and there are ways to get people to take a step back. Take a deep breath and let them know you're not harming your child. You have no ill intent, right? But it's not as simple as, well, just 
make sure one person knows everything because it doesn't work that way. I, again, I wish it did. Our healthcare system isn't set up for that. At least not yet, unless you can get a good clinic that are obviously very rare. So, bear with me one second. I don't know what happened when the Pelletiers went to Children's Hospital and didn't get to see the gastroenterologist that they wanted to see. I don't know if they first went to the ER room, but I got to tell you, um, and I don't know if this could be prevented, but somehow you've got to be able to see the person that you were going over there to see. It can't get that bad that quickly. I don't, I wasn't there, and I'm not even going to suggest. Let me just say as an observation, some, sometimes the way you have these interactions with these doctors, you know, they, they get rubbed the wrong way based on your own presentation, right? So there's some delicate balance you have to have some ability to be a good, you know, diplomat. You can't go in like a like a raging bull. You can't go in um, putting people down, or 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 getting out of hand quickly. You know, becoming very disagreeable. You just doesn't work for you. You can't do it. Somehow you got to keep your cool under very difficult circumstances. But boy, I'll tell you. Having the ER suddenly start making these, these big decisions, when you're there to see a high-level gastroenterologist, a specialist, having the ER start to get involved, that's a dangerous situation, right? And then having a psych consult when you're there for a medical problem, another real problem, right? Just as an aside, I had a teacher going, unrelated, I had a teacher come into a, a hospital for uh, having a, an anaphylactic shock, right? She has a disgruntled ex-husband come in later and says, oh no, she's, she's got some psychiatric problems. Do you know she was held for three days in a psych ward because of that one thing? All of a sudden, what she came in for is a medical problem. She's now being rushed over here to the psych department. That's how easy it is to get these things derailed. It's complicated and, and yet easy to suddenly find yourself with huge, huge problems. Now, again, don't come off too pushy, but be respectful. But I also think that, you, you, you know, you need to be educated. You need to understand things. I hope the one thing that comes out of this case there's going to be a lot of things that come out of this case. Let me just say, I was, we were talking about this earlier. This case will be studied for a long time, right? It needs to be. It has to be. It needs to lead to some reform. Um, these parents were educated, right? 
And they weren't going to simply take no for an answer. There's got to be an ability, though, to deal with some of these egos that, that get involved very quickly. Let's be blunt. A lot of these doctors here in these big institutions have egos. And boy, when they disagree with something, I mean, they don't just disagree. They make their position well-known. And like I said, it only takes one phone call. And all of a sudden, you could be in court in 72 hours fighting for your child. Uh, I do think that there needs to be, and I know there's uh, efforts being made now, for a support group, uh, network. I think that we've gotten to a point where these cases are so complex and can really be derailed quickly that there needs to be an effort to corral resources so that parents like yourselves, if you get into a problem like this, know you have a place to go. Lawyers would be willing to get involved. Um, doctors would be willing to provide their services or at least uh, be references. And I really think that, that we need to start, and we we're also talking about how, how challenging it is just to get an expert to testify in these cases, right? Think about it. A lot of these experts either directly work with these hospitals or they don't want to be you know, blacklisted. They don't want to all of a sudden be on the outs, right? It's like being in the police force and uh, working for, um, what's that, uh, you know, the ethics. Uh, what's that word? I don't know. What is it? Internal affairs. Right, it's like, being, it's like working for internal affairs, right? So that's a real problem. And I know I'm going to take some steps, and I know others here in this room will, to start to really reach out and get some people who would be willing to do it, right? Because that's what you need. If you can't get somebody at the same caliber to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a child, child protection team expert, you've lost. You don't have a chance. You just don't. So here's the other little thing. Document everything. Everything. Let me tell you how easy it is, and I do it all the time. I cross-examine a social worker or a doctor or what have you. And let me just give you a little tip. The, the Department of Children and Families keeps a little thing called this family net system where they produce these reports called dictation reports. And it's their own internal network, uh, note, it's their internal notes, right? Every time they make a phone call, they write a letter, they meet with someone, they visit, they, they, they observe a, a parent-child visit, they're keeping notes, right? I can't tell you how many times I've had a, you know, I have a social worker on the stand and I'm cross-examining him or her and she's talking about something and I have her notes because I get them. As lawyers in these, in these cases, we get these notes and sometimes when we're not in court, I get these notes. And I can see how she portrayed certain things, right? Meaning, 
We can both watch, we can see something, right? We can watch something, and we can write about it later. You'd think you were watching two different things, because we all perceive differently. And let's be truthful, we have filters. So we want to hear things that we want to hear, we want to see things we want to see. And a lot of these so-called facts, they're not facts, they're opinions, they're perceptions. Now it's the lawyer's job to ferret that, to get rid of that stuff by the time you go to court. But you know what? A, it doesn't always happen. And B, you hope you don't land in court, right? So what you need to do, and I tell my clients from, from the get-go, when you're dealing with these situations, especially with the department, but now, frankly, with hospitals, you've got to keep a log. You've got to start writing all these things down. Every time you talk to somebody, every time you are told something, oh, we'll give you this, or we'll give you that, or we won't do this, or we won't do that, you've got to write that down. Because I love, as a lawyer, in these cases, when I'm cross-examining someone and I'm saying, really? That's what she said? So, she told you that whatever, and you have it in your report right here. For example, the classic one is, I love these uh, cases, when you do lose your child, and that child's in the care of the department, and you go to a visit. Because now you can't see your kid when you want. You have to go to a visit. And they usually start an hour a week at the Department of Children and Families. That's your visitation with your child. And you've got a social worker sitting right like that, right outside the door, monitoring your visit, your visit with your kid. And writing notes, right? And I love it when I see a social worker, she writes or she testifies, well, mother got argumentative during uh, this visit. She asked an inappropriate question during her visit with her child about some adult topic, right? But I told my client at the very beginning of the case to keep a log. And every time, you know, something like this happens, you're in a situation, make notes. And what I happened, then I had my client on the stand, and I say, um, so what happened during that thing? You did what? You asked, could you have an extra half hour visit with your child because it's Christmas? But that social worker said you were getting argumentative, right? And I get to say to my client, how do you remember that? I mean, that was a year and a half ago. How do you remember that? Because that's how detailed these cases get, by the way. All the little details about that last year and a half come into play. And she says, oh, well, I wrote it down. Who told you to write that down? You did, a year and a half ago. And I get to say to that social worker, ma'am, isn't it true that all she did was ask you, could she get an extra half hour? And you wrote down, she was argumentative? That tells the judge everything. Now all of a sudden, okay, we know what we're dealing with here. That bias, that, that we're not getting a fair shake. That's what we're getting. We're not getting a fair shake out of the social worker or this investigator. And you got to get to that. You got to get to that point where you're able to start to break down the machinery in these cases because it's stacked against you when you go in. 
but it takes a long time. So, there was a comment about what, you know, what adults can do. You know, when you've got an illness that really could be debilitating. And I'm no estate's trust and wills attorney. I don't, I'm not going to give you all that advice. But one thing you really need to have is a durable power of attorney in place that can cover you while you're incapacitated, right? Uh, because otherwise you're going to lose your ability to have someone on your side making decisions for you when that happens. We all know with kids, you know, you lose that right and all of a sudden, you know, which is ironic is because, you know, when Jessica pointed out that, you know, just because the department has, has um, temporary custody of your child doesn't give, you don't lose everything. You don't lose all your rights to that child, at least legally. In practicality, let me just tell you something. I had a case recently. It's unbelievable. The allegation of physical child abuse. And the father and the mother couldn't get anything out of, as it were, Children's Hospital. And they're be I'm being told by the department's lawyer, hey, we, we didn't stop this. That they should be able to get access to their child's uh, medical care and well-being, how she's doing. Come to find out that that's not the case at all. Somebody within the department said, do not tell the parents anything other than how basically she's doing. Oh, she's doing okay. She's doing okay. So that's how the game is really played, unfortunately, too often. You do lose certain rights. Rights to access to information. And boy, that's tough. Um, and I love it when it shows up in the medical records, too. When they're telling me all along, oh, no, no, we didn't say that, we didn't say that. And it's right there in black and white. Don't tell the parents anything. So, but anyway, adults, durable power of attorney. Parents, like I said, you gotta, it's a tough game you're playing, but boy, you gotta play it smart. You gotta know when to push and then when to hold back. When to have an advocate speak for you. You know, people ask me all the time, well, doesn't that make me look more guilty? You know, when I have a lawyer or something, you know, with these DCF meetings and whatnot. <laughs> you know, maybe there was a time, I don't know. But the reality is, no. These social workers deal with lawyers all the time. In court, they're used to lawyers. They don't like them, right? They don't like them. But the reality is they also know that you have every right to have counsel. You have every right to have uh, someone um, trying to influence the outcome and uh, try to get these people. You know, given a typical example of a, a lot of parents don't realize, you know, when they sit down with these uh, social workers during an investigation, they need to put all their good stuff forward. They need to let them know who to talk to, right? I mean, they're thinking, oh, I don't want to, you know, let them talk to so-and-so because, you know, maybe they don't want them to know, right? 
And I get that. I understand that there's a privacy issue involved. But boy, it makes a big difference when you can give them a list of collateral sources, names of, you know, whether they be, they be experts, neighbors, friends, family, uh, teachers, therapists, all sorts of folks who've seen these children over the period of, you know, of whatever years or months. It makes a huge difference. And then, guess what? I get to make sure they contact them. And if they don't, and they support this charge, this, this 51A, during an appeal, I get to bring it up, and that's an appealable issue. Well, you never talk to the people we asked you to talk to that would have told you something completely different about the behavior of this child or you know, observations that were made makes a huge difference. Again, difference. Again, it's being proactive without being too disagreeable, too argumentative, too in your face. You know what my approach to these things is? And it's not the approach of a lot of, a lot of uh, lawyers that, uh, you know, a lot of lawyers don't do the work that I do, but, um, <clears throat> you know, lawyers that either if they did or if they do other areas, uh, family law, for example, divorce law, criminal defense, they come at it very disagreeable right up front. I've had uh, lawyers tell clients, don't let DCF even talk to you. Don't talk to DCF. Don't let them in your door. And I get calls all the time that say that. I shouldn't let them in my door, right? You don't have to. But you do run the risk of having to go to court next week. So what's the answer? Again, you don't have to be a doormat. What I tell clients, frankly, is this. They come to your door. What they need to see are the children. or is or, you know, They need to see the children. They need to make sure that they're right. Because it's one of the things that they're, they're, they're required to do by law. Are the children safe currently, right now? So if they're inclined to have counsel at some later date, you know what I tell uh, clients? All right, fine. Parade the kids out. Wave to the social worker. We're fine. We're okay. But my attorney will be contacting you for a meeting. Because that's all they would need to do right then and there. They don't need to interview the children. I wouldn't let them. Right? So little things that you need to know about your rights. Yes, you have the right to shut that door but you run the risk of the next knock on the door will be a police officer with that social worker. So that's not a smart thing to do. My philosophy is be nice. What a concept. Actually be nice to these people. They have a lot of power. Why wouldn't you be nice? Why would you become ultimate, I mean, right off the bat disagreeable? Why would you say you're not gonna talk to my clients, we're not gonna talk to you, go away? When they're the state, they're, regular, they're required, they're required to talk to their lawyer if, if they can't have access to your child. To have that consult, is the risk great enough for us to go to court? They have to have that conversation. No, what makes more sense is you do it in a principled, rational manner. Talk to these people. now. 
Truth be told, there are cases like these, some of these physical cases, physical abuse cases, where the parent runs the risk of incriminating themselves. That's another conversation for another day, right? Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. But even in those cases, I don't always reflexively say, don't talk to these people. No, there are ways around that too. You don't have to say things about certain subjects, but you know what I want them to know? I want them to know who you are as a person, as a parent, again, so they can get more comfortable with you. And I want to know, I want them to know what the good things are going on here in the family, right? They've heard the bad things. They've heard all these conjectures from, from other so-called, you know, experts. Again, they're not facts. They're, those are all opinions for the most part. They need to know the good things. They need to hear all the things you've been doing. And once you start breaking down this, this, this perception of you, good things can happen. But when they don't get access, that perception doesn't go away. It actually gets emboldened, right? It becomes cement that you can't now dismantle. So you gotta, you gotta be willing and I think uh, Jessica also pointed out, I mean, you got to be willing to cooperate, right? But you just need to be smart about it. And when I, when I sense, and believe me, it happens all the time, when I sense this institutional bias, because they are buying the storyline, the, the line fed to them by the hospitals, that's when I do a timeout with them. And I said, listen, you're not going to do that. You can't do that. You won't do that. And if I need to go up the chain of ladder, I will. Before we finally get to some place in that institution, in that agency, that's going to be smart about this and say, yeah, you're right. We need to look at this critically, not just reflexively. And that does work. You realize that in one case, that, that Panda's case, they wanted to have, and you got to watch out for this, they wanted to have a team meeting at the Department of Children and Families. Again, unbeknownst, well, I knew, but they were gearing up to file a petition for care and protection. I knew it, right? But they, and because the, the, the parents had been resisting, so what they do is they tell you, the department tells you, you need to do this. And then we'll go away. In this case, you need to get this child psychiatrically treated, right? Because that's what the doctors over there are saying, right? And so they said, we're going to have a team meeting at the department. We want the parents to come, and we're going to talk about their child's treatment. Now, I mean, that doesn't even sound like a good idea, does it? I mean, on its face, it doesn't sound good. So I said, okay, we'll have the team meeting, but I'm going to be there, and our expert from Maryland is going to be on the phone. Right? We're not going to have your your I think they had a psychiatrist who was going to be there in the, in, the, in the meeting, without having us be equipped with our expert who thought 
clearly this is a medical problem. And then a curious thing happened. That was like on a Wednesday, they were gonna, we were gonna hold this thing, I think that Monday. That Wednesday, they said, we're gonna have the meeting. We line up our expert, ready to be on call. And I said to that social worker, I said, listen, would you just do me a favor? Would you come to the house and see this kid? I think you're gonna be surprised by what you see. Because now she was back on her medication. This cocktail that she had, uh, that her expert in Maryland had, uh, no, I think it was from Connecticut, had put her back on. By the way, that was this close to being a Justina Pelletier case. Bader 5, everything was just about to just blow up. Somehow we got her out of there, got her out of children's altogether, and went along this path. Well, the social worker comes on on a Friday, sees this child, who is now not quite able to walk, no, but moving around much better. A lot of the uh, tics that she had were gone. Um, her mother could now leave her alone for a little bit, you know, where she wouldn't bang her head against the wall or whatever. And she was just much more alert and, and uh, really like another child, really another kid. And the social worker saw this and said, oh my God, I think we were wrong. This kid's actually doing really well after now being on her medication for a month. And next thing you know, that meeting that was going to be on Monday is canceled. And nothing was filed. They closed the case. And that was it. And that kid is, is doing much better today on her medication. That's the kind of touch and go. This is what happens in these cases. Literally day to day, moment by moment, you don't quite know how things are going to go. But you got to, this is the hardest thing. Somehow you got to um, keep it together. That's the hardest thing. How do you keep it together? You do it by support, like this. You have your network, you have your support network. You talk to people, you, you work things out. I'm having a bad day, what do I do? Make a phone call. That's what you gotta do. Because you gotta stay strong. And I, I do, I tell parents all the time, you have to stay strong. Because if you don't, the whole, you know what happens next? Oh my God, we think the mother's unstable. Now we have another basis to take that child. Can you imagine that? You know, I get this all the time. What do you think she's going through? You think this is easy? And yet they see one sign of instability and the whole, all the wheels fall off. Oh my God, now we have to do it quick. You know, like now we have to go in. So you got to stay strong. Build a network as you're doing and use it, right? Use it. Now, I don't know how long I've talked, but let's um, open up for questions. Because I could talk all day about this. And I know, I know you've got other things to do. So any, any questions? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a class in the Bible. 
Can I stop you right there? Why are you going to the emergency room? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I have a very good relation with the hospital. Yeah. Say that I'm not, I'm not in a position to you know, obviously give medical advice or frankly even real legal advice because um, it's just much more complicated. I need to know a lot more. But let me just say, say this. One of the things that you need to do, you got to have your medical records, right? You got to have your medical records in hand, right? You, you don't want to walk in and simply just avail yourself to the vagaries of an ER room. Right? You just don't. If you can, you know, get a referral from your, again, hopefully you have a good relationship with your pediatrician. Your pediatrician's on board, understands, if not all the complexities, enough to appreciate that you're not on some wild goose chase or that you're psychologically impaired and you're actually harm, trying to harm your child. Right? So if you've got that kind of relationship, you want to grease the wheels. You want to make sure you don't fall into this black hole of an ER room where all of a sudden you just completely lose control of the situation. You don't want that. You want to keep it as above board as possible. Ideally, you always want to get to the, the right people. That's why I caution you about just going to an ER room, right? Ideally, you go to the, the experts, not the ER room. Sometimes I, that is not available. You have to do it. Um, you got to be real careful. But I think you got it. I always tell people, get your records. If you're involved with DCF, get the DCF records. If you're involved with hospitals, get those records too. Pediatrician, get those records. Just be, be prepared, be equipped. So if someone is suddenly coming and knows you from, you know, doesn't know you at all, doesn't know your child at all, and may have an orientation very different, right, from where you're coming from. You know, maybe they've got, I don't know, I mean, they're predisposed to think it's psychiatric or something like that. Or that it, it's just some other medical condition, right? At least you have some basis to say, look, this is why I'm here, right? And I've been talking to these people. You want to talk to them? Fine. But I'm here right now and I need help, right? So that's the kind of 
Uh, I mean, that, that's being a responsible parent, I think, and being, and being careful, being careful and smart. But it's always risky. I'm not going to lie. It's risky. You know? One other thing about that, you know, one thing that this case has really brought out is how political some of these things, these issues are, right? And, you know, we don't have time, and nor do I have the, uh, uh, the inside knowledge of what was really going on here. But, boy, I'm sure you've read some things online about theories about some of the other things that have been going on. Well, it really does make you second guess where you bring your kid, doesn't it? All of a sudden, places you thought, these venerable institutions you thought were just, in one sense, harmless, because they're just going to give you great medical care, you, can, you now realize they're not harmless. They can be very destructive. Not to say, and I won't be the one to say, that some of these institutions that we're talking about aren't great institutions. They are. They do great work. You know, that's why people from all over the world come to these institutions. But, as we've seen, there is this so-called dark side. And, truth be told, it's the child protection team, generally speaking. But it's not just the child protection team, it's also some of these experts in these fields where, again, things aren't settled. And there's all these disagreeing uh, opinions. And these opinions, like I said in the beginning, they come with their strong opinions, filled with, you know, surrounded by egos. So you get that involved, and you have that access to the child protection team, and then DCF, and then the state, and then the courts. That's what you're faced with. That's what you're up against. So be very careful. Very careful where you take your job. Uh, just know what's going on, and hopefully we'll know more about the various players involved, who's making decisions and how they're making. You know, Jessica was talking about a lot of the ethical issues here. Um, no question about it. I mean, don't you think this, this, this needs to be looked at carefully? Ideally, an independent, you know, whether it be the government or whether it be an a third party, uh, they need to look at how these decisions are made. How is it that all of a sudden, just like that, what was thought to be a medical problem is now just exclusively psychiatric? How does that happen? And who gets to make those decisions? Shouldn't there be an independent board of, of some sort that is evaluating this, and not a child protection team that has, they're already predisposed, right? to think child abuse. I mean, that's what they do. And I'm not saying they always think something's child abuse. They don't, clearly, right? They don't. But why would you put it in the hands of that kind of a team when we aren't clear that it's abuse? I mean, it's almost like saying, well, what are you, why are you even bringing up the word abuse? We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We're way over here trying to figure out what this kid has. And we've got medical people and 
psychiatrists are disagreeing. How do you get to a place where you're calling that, even thinking about abuse? By the parent. Think about that, abuse by the parent. When I, I said to the, uh, one of the first cases that I had, if these doctors can't even agree what this child has, are we to believe that this parent over here is able to manipulate, bamboozle, you know, trick all these experts? And I heard this before. Oh, well, she's triangulating. She's, she's making calls over here, right? She's making calls over here. It gets back to that age-old question about having that one person that doesn't exist. But is that the parent's problem? Of course not. And yet the parent's being blamed. More often than not, it's the parent that is that point person. Right? And then she's blamed for being that point person because she's now pulling all these strings, all these levers. Now that's just a unfortunate failing of our system right now, our healthcare system, more than anything else. But you know what? You gotta push back on that one, right? You gotta push back hard on that one. All you're trying to do is do right by your kid. Do not let anyone try to tell you you're not doing that, that something else is going on here. Really, if that's true, then why don't you figure it out? Why don't you figure it out? Because I can't. I just need help, right? So anyway, the ER is a tricky one. I, I, I gotta be honest. I just, hypothetically speaking, I just don't think the ER is a place for experimentation. I don't think an ER is a place for non-medical emergencies, right? I mean, it isn't, that's just a fact. It's not designed to treat things that are other than emergencies. That's why they call it an emergency room. So don't abuse the ER and try to, especially with a complicated, somewhat controversial diagnosis that you might have. They're not equipped to handle that. And you're not gonna get someone who is gonna buy into what you're telling them automatically, right? They're gonna be, think, think about it, wouldn't you be a little suspicious? If you're, you know, an ER doctor, you're trying to tell them about some exotic thing that your kid has, and so you need a G-tube or something? Time out, consult, that's how it happens. So, any other questions? Right. And so they tried to be very high going to doctors. Yep. And you know, I don't ever want that again. Mm -hmm. But I do have two special needs kids. Right. Um, one with a diagnosis of mitochondrial dysfunction and one that um, is probably seeking one yep. 
Yeah. Um, so I'm, you know, I want something in my pocket. I know. I definitely do not want to walk that line ever. Yeah, yeah. Well, the short is we're not there yet. We don't have that kind of built-in network nationally or even on the state level. I know there are efforts uh, to really develop that type of a network. Um, and this has been the biggest problem. When you think about it, you know, everybody in the equation, actually, let me rephrase it. There's so much power in certain areas of this, this process. The ones that don't have power right now are the parents. They don't have it, right? They just don't. Um, you know, and children, they get court-appointed attorneys, for example, in court. But if they're young enough, as I told you, if they can't come out and say, I want to go home, and I'm old enough to say so, all of a sudden, you now you have another agent, frankly, usually, of the state, right? So there does need to be this type of action to start putting together this kind of a network for parents. And I caution, I meant to say this earlier, I know there's a lot of things online, I've read a lot of things, and, and, you know, and I know passions run hot, you know, there's no question about it, but I just caution, um, yes, there needs to be, there needs to be advocacy groups, support groups, groups that can provide resources, but I do caution that certain people bring to the table unproductive, uh, well, lack of a better word, advocacy, um, that, that really does kind of, it's outside the mainstream, right? Um, that's not productive. We need to be very careful about, and I say we, but you need to be very careful about the image you want to portray. And going forward as some identified group, right? You don't want it to be hijacked by some folks who really want to, um, like I said, go out, uh, outside the mainstream and really cause some potential damage. Not just to your credibility, but real harm to individuals and everything else. Um, it needs to be above board, above the fray. It needs to be legitimate. Right? Um, but I do think that, that there needs to be leadership, not just as a support group any longer. It really needs to be both advocacy and support, refer, you know, resources. Has to happen. We've reached a, a critical mass here where this can't happen again. What, we, what we're seeing unfold in the, day, in the papers has to stop. It's out of control, right? Any other questions before I go? I know it's almost 3 o'clock. Yeah. And yeah. I've been in that moment and that 
and then is given false information from the radiation after they violated the yeah. It's all documented there in the medical records. They consulted with the lawyer who told them what they were doing was illegal because they're mandated reporters. They documented that. Hang on, what was illegal? That they did not report me. They were going to everyone saying this false information, yeah. including to the child protection person who also violated the law, mm -hmm. did not report it. It's documented. Mm -hmm. Now you can't get medical records. And I can't get a lawyer within the state I live. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I wish we had more time, but let me tell you, first of all, I'll go on record to say that the, the way all these cases are handled, the statute, the, uh, the mandated reporters, the, the regulations that are in place today have to be reformed, right? Absolutely have to be reformed. You realize that mandated reporters and the Department of Children and Families enjoy qualified immunity from lawsuits, right? But the only way you can actually pierce that is by showing that it was fraudulent or absolutely frivolous or baseless. And you know how hard that is, right? And to your point, what's unfortunate, you start to build a record, right? Medical records, DCF reports, and that stuff haunts you. All the inaccuracies, right? All the flat out, you know, baseless opinions just, just gets regurgitated every time someone makes up a new report because it all follows along. And that's tough. In my situation, yeah. there was never, this is four years ago, never a report. Mm. Ever. In fact, it's been two years and I haven't been they followed through on the breath. Mm. And my child was put into a hospital, essentially, a bigger Yeah, yeah. And they hold that with me. Mm. Um, because, and I was told, essentially, by the hospital lawyer, who is on the forewarning to everybody, medical legal teams are medical. Oh, no question. No question. Yeah, everybody should be real clear about that. These teams that come in to assess the situation, uh, they're not on your team, okay? They're not on your team. And don't think twice that they, for a moment that they are. That's why, to the best of your ability, early on, you gotta make a lot of noise, you gotta make a lot of noise to make sure that your people get heard while this is happening. And if you gotta go straight to their lawyers or their ethics committee, do it. Here's the thing about this, and it may it is a little too late for the Pelletier case, and, and she will, I have no doubt she's going to come home, right? But the one good thing that may have come out of this is the public awareness, right? You got to make a lot of noise when things start to really fall apart. You absolutely have to just, at that point, Take everything you've got and move forward. You have to. You don't have a choice. 
right? And I'm hopeful that somewhere along the line there will be reform. Here's where we're at right now, however, as Jessica and I found out, the talk about the political, the politics. The political will right now, you know what's even, what's actually wreaking more havoc on the Department of Children and Families? It's not the Pelletier case. It's the Fitchburg case, right? I don't want to get into it, but if you don't know what this case is, you can read about it. A uh, little boy went missing, presumed dead. That's having more ripples across this state uh, in terms of the Department of Children and Families than anything that the Pelletier case has done. And that's unfortunate for another reason that affects us. Because the political sentiment right now isn't that the department has too much power, it's they don't have enough, and they're not, they don't, they're not doing it well enough. And they need more resources to do better at their job, right? So in that regard, unfortunately, this Fitchburg case has done, uh, it set us back in trying to seek reform for the, for the, in terms of the department, and frankly, the court system and, and the way these, these cases are oper they operate. And that's going to be a real problem for, for some time before that, before that really simmers out uh, to a point where, you know, do you realize every office is having internal reviews? I mean, every one, every case file is being reviewed to make sure these children are being seen every month, right? Do you think that's putting a chill in how, and do you think the filing, and this is just a fact, the filings, the report, the, 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 the cases that are being filed in court now, way up, right? The 51As that are being filed against parents, way up. The removals, way up. I've had lawyers for the department say to me, and if it weren't for Fitchburg, he never would have filed this thing. So, as, we, as I step off this podium, understand the climate we're in right now. It'll change at some point, I'm sure. But understand, it's even worse than you can possibly imagine how dangerous it's going to be in, in preventing these reports from being filed. Everybody, mandated reporters, are, they're all hair triggers to report these things. They don't want to be the one to not, have not reported something and God forbid a child is harmed. They don't want to be on the, on the hook for that. That is what's going on right now. So that's a real unfortunate situation. But you need to be on guard. You need to understand, you know, but know your rights. Get your records. Get involved early. And uh, get help early. I guess one more question. Well, that's a whole nother. Uh, no, I understand. You know what? I don't want to speak for the Pelletiers. I'm not representing the Pelletier family. I understand. You know what the biggest thing, frankly, and it gets back to your question about support and advocacy and whatnot. Here's what really needs to happen. There needs to be a movement of parents to assert these rights, to get the reform, right? You need to get 
the, the ear of your legislators who are being told that DCF's not doing enough. They need to hear all the cases where they're doing too much. And guess what? It's not good. It's not right. Right? The legislators need to hear that. They need to hear of all the families that have been devastated because of the actions, not just of the department, the hospitals, these child protection teams, and DCF. They need to hear about these cases. And I think it's they need to hear from you, these parents. They need to hear it from the children, right? Could you imagine? Right? These kids come in all lined up. They want to talk to these legislators. Could you imagine that? What happened to me when I was five years old or seven years old? That's what needs to happen. Because right now, all the power is over there. And the only way the power is going to, at, at any time, get equalized is through political will, political movement on your side. child neglect, abuse, you know, and who have got the familiarity with these agencies and these hospitals. They do exist. You just got to research them. Do your homework. Uh, the, at this point, if a, if a lawyer who does this kind of work doesn't have a good website, you probably don't want them. Uh, so you should be able to find them. Uh, that's just the way that is, right? And then the other part about the uh, what? Well, having a lawyer and retainer, well, I certainly can't disagree with that. <laughs> uh, you know, that's always a good thing. Um, and she also asked um, if we notice at the hospital that there is an issue with disagreeing with the attendant physician. What can we do at that moment? Uh, someone else asked a very similar question. Uh, what are the very first and most important steps to take when you've been accused to protect your family? And son of you know, I I'm not going to say that you want to do this in every case, but I am almost to the point where if you, if you really see a major uh, disagreement brewing and where you're going to have a real conflict, I mean, I'm almost at the point where you've got to start to really call out the ethics committee. Have your lawyer contact their lawyer. Have your experts start to contact their experts. You've got to make a lot of noise quickly, right? Again, a lot of these cases blew up 
before the parents were even awake, right? They didn't even know what was going on. You got to know what's happening. You got to know that I'm sensing there's a lot of discord here or disagreement even within, even within the hospital, right? So you got to be on guard and start to take that and, and go up the chain of command. Let everybody know about it. Don't let a few people run with the ball and then get to the child protection team and then it's too late. Because it is too late. Do not let that get that far. And if it means you gotta be a little pushy, fine. You know? Again, you can be disagreeable without being overly argumentative and offensive. Right? And you should be. Can't start, uh, you can't make it personal. You can't make it ego-driven or emotional-driven, right? Even though we do know that there are some egos on the other side. We know this. But get your team lined up, ready to do battle quickly when you sense that there's something happening that's not good. You know, when all of a sudden people are starting to whisper and, you know, people leaving the room and other people are coming in, you know something's happening. That's a danger, right? So just be, have your own network on a phone call notice. I also have, just, oh, yeah. just briefly. If you, if you realize that, if you're in, in a hospital and you see a situation starting to go down, you're starting to get concerned, there are a couple simple things that I usually advise families to do as a patient and family advocate. The first one is, if there's not a social worker involved in your case, ask for a social worker to be brought in. The second one is, if, the hospital, if you've talked to the social worker and you still feel like the problem is expanding and the social worker can't help you get that straightened out, the next step is to either call for a patient advocate in the hospital system. All hospitals have patient advocates. You can, always, you can always ask for one. You don't have to have a doctor's referral. You can talk to them yourself, same with social work. You can also make a referral to the hospital ethics committee, and you don't have to have a doctor to do that in most hospitals. Um, especially if you have a social worker who's involved with your case and you feel like things are not getting settled, that social worker can help you make a referral to the hospital ethics committee. Ethics committees are a good resource in most hospitals because they take a more balanced view. They're not usually siding with just the doctors or just the families. They usually are pretty balanced. If you feel like you've talked to a social worker, you've talked to a patient advocate in the hospital system, and you have a case that's going through the hospital ethics committee and things are really starting to get out of control and you really feel like you know DCF is being called or if they haven't been called already, which they may have been, or the child abuse team from the hospital has been called, that's a really good time to find your attorney at that point. And that's usually the, um, the series of steps that I would advise families to do. The other thing to do right away is if you're in a hospital admission and you feel like things are going south fast, get on the phone with your pediatrician. Because even if you don't have a great um, relationship where they don't have a lot of knowledge about your child, the reason to do that is the very first thing that DCF does is get on the phone with your pediatrician. Because they're going to assume that your pediatrician has is that point person that we talked about doesn't exist for a lot of our families. So before the situation goes self fast, make sure the pediatrician hears your side of the story too. So those would be the things. Social workers in the hospitals, patient advocates, ethics committee, pediatrician, attorney. And that would usually be the way that I would tell parents to parse it out. Uh, two things about that. And I agree with what Jessica just said. Quite often, you won't, you won't even have to ask for a social worker. They'll be there on the floor in a hospital. Be very careful about those social workers. Obviously, if you can make them your friend, great. But understand, too often they're not your friend. And all they're doing is gathering information. 
So just be careful about that. Understand that everything that happens when you're in there, right, in these hospitals, you're being watched. And unfortunately, judgments are being passed uh, against you. So how you conduct yourself is extremely important. You need to be very careful about that. Don't let the, your emotions run, you know, muck. You can't let yourself get out of control because they're watching you. And they'll put it all in the reports and they'll make sure that, you know, if it ever gets to a judge, they're going to read that too. Um, the business about the pediatrician, that's absolutely correct. You've got to have people that you're working with know what you're doing in real time. There can't be, well, they don't even know you're here. So what are you doing? Are you, you know, behind, running behind their back, not informing certain people when they should be in the loop? You gotta do it. You gotta make sure people are in the loop. It's kind of like, you know, I'm a big hiker. When I go on a trail, I make sure people know I'm on that trail. My wife knows. She always knows what route I'm taking, when I left, and when I expect to come back. You gotta do that too when you go to the hospital. You gotta have a trail of people behind you who know exactly what you're doing and whom you can talk to, especially when things get out of hand. It's very possible that that pediatrician could derail what could otherwise be a child protection team consult. Say, no, 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 she's there because I told her to go there or I knew about it. She's just doing this or that and the other thing, right? So again, you just gotta be aware and make sure everybody else on your team is aware. I think that's it, right? I want to thank you very much for hearing me babble for the last uh, couple hours. Thank you.